Baseball season's almost here, and there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site, where you could win huge cash prizes every day. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitment. Every time you play, it's like a new season. Head to DraftKings.com now and use code ATHLETE to play for free in the opening day $100,000 fantasy baseball contest. First place takes home ten grand. Enter ATHLETE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. We'll get to my guest, the great Eric Bogosian, in a second. But first, uh, I just want to say it's important that you subscribe to this podcast if you want to keep hearing it. Uh, subscribe to it, iTunes.com slash The Moment. If you've been listening to it in the Grantland Pop Culture feed, it's not going to be in there anymore after this week. Uh, I've had an incredible run with Grantland. Uh, I'm so grateful to Bill Simmons, Dave Jacoby, Joseph Fuentes. Simmons... Uh, from the beginning, when we talked about doing this, was like, I'll give you a microphone. I'll make this easy for you. I think it's a great idea. Jacoby really picked up the baton and helped me figure out the show. And Joseph Fuentes has been amazing in, in terms of figuring out how to get it to you guys on the technical, uh, on the technical side. Um, but if you subscribe, uh, Grantland's been so cool that uh, if you, as long as you subscribe to uh, iTunes.com slash the moment, um, you will st- keep getting the podcast even when it's not a part of Grantland anymore. I have a tremendous fondness for Grantland. I'm sure that I'll write some stuff for them in, in the future and be friends with all the great friends I've made there. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks also to my assistant producer, Jason DeLeon, who is still going to be uh, that. Um, and thanks. This has been, in a, in a, you know, nothing's going to change on the show. It's just going to be hosted in a different place that I'll announce uh, next week and uh, that I'm excited about. But uh Thanks again for listening and finding me here on Grantland. And thank you uh, to Bill, to uh, Joseph, to Dave. Jacoby, here's Eric Bogosian on The Moment. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest, Eric Bogosian, is somebody who has clearly had a number of these moments. And I'm excited to talk to him about them. Uh, Bogosian is a writer, director, monologuist. Uh, he's a playwright and has been uh, an important figure in the culture since uh, 1980 when he first came to New York. And we'll talk about that and how uh, he decided or ended up um, building these one-man shows, doing these characters, and how that led him on what's now been over a 30-year career uh, in all different areas of show business. You might know his movie, Talk Radio. You might know Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Uh, but you've definitely, you might know him from Law and Order, uh, where he did, I don't know, 70 episodes as an actor. He's someone who's, who's, his work has always meant a great deal to me, and I'm thrilled that I'm going to be talking to him. He'll be here soon. Again, uh, thanks for listening to The Moment. People would really listen if you had a podcast. You have a really successful podcast. The reason why I don't have a podcast and the reason why I don't do things like that, like have a radio program yeah. or anything, is because I love to talk and I see it as like some kind of uh, bad habit or bad thing that I'm always trying to suppress in myself. So whenever I let go and talk as much as I want to, then I have like a hangover afterwards and I feel guilty from it. So a podcast or anything like that on a regular basis would be like 
telling an alcoholic that he needs to go to the bar and drink every week until he's drunk. Yeah, I mean, you dive right in because I just wonder, one of the biggest sort of questions I, I have, it, I think, t just ties into this, which is, I wonder how complicated your relationship to your own success is. <laughs> it's not that complicated because I know that I get visceral pleasure from two things. One, um, and this is just in terms of success. This yes. is not in terms of my relationship to my work or to the degree that the work is, yeah. works or it doesn't work. That's, it's, that's really the 90% of what I love about what I do and why I like to do it. But in that success world, um, there's uh, financial security, A, love it, and B, there's no question that when you have some kind of success, especially vis-a-vis -vis the mass media, people treat you differently. And I'm just insecure enough to want that cushion. I like that cushion. Now, I just had somebody talking to me about this the other day about like you go in the restaurant, you always get a table. That's yeah. not really what I'm talking about because you sort of pay all that back sooner or later. But there is a kind of a just general feel like and for me, it's always changing. The regard in which people hold you. Yes, right. Like you walk into a party and somebody you've never met. I remember one time I'm, uh, I was uh, meeting Norman Mailer for the first and last time. And he said, hey, Eric, how you doing? And I know I'd never met him before. And it was like, wow, Norman Mailer. That's kind of, is that significant, not significant? Anyway, it sort of happens all the time. The funny thing is with me is that sometimes... It's like that step on the stair that isn't there. I think it's going to happen, and then it doesn't That's happen. That's so brutal. And I'm like on a set. This actually happened on the set of Gattaca, and I started talking to Uma Thurman, who I had met a couple of times. I was there because of Ethan. And uh, I'd met Uma before. I assumed she knew me or remembered me, and then there were even people who've never met me who remember me. And uh, I was talking to her, and she turned to some PA, and she said, who is this man and why is he talking to me? And I was like, well, okay, yeah. And she you wasn't kidding around? No, she was working. She kind of had the right, uh, something I wasn't completely understanding, that she was focusing on what she was doing at the moment. And there was a, they had done some takes and then they were breaking and they were resetting uh, and I had started talking to you her. You bum rushed her like kind of right in the middle of her work day. <laughs> well, yes. I think a turnaround, I don't, I mean, everything I've ever done when you're in turnaround, the, the people start to talk and loosen up, especially if there's somebody there, you know, I mean, that's when I break is when they reset the lights. And if somebody's been waiting, I don't know. It was an inflated sense of myself, I guess. Oh, the thing fantastic. is for me, it's, 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 it's taught me that you know, don't rely on it. But, but I, yeah, so that's, that's that part of it. But the, the bigger thing for me, uh, and the really substantial thing, not to sound like a complete petty jerk here, is that um, when I was a kid, I guess we're talking college here, the people I liked were fringe artists who were very particular in what they did. They didn't have huge followings. Um, you know, I don't know, Rasan Roland Kirk or um, um, Sam Rivers or Bill Evans. That's just jazz yeah, people. Sure. Uh, in the theater world, Richard Foreman. Richard Foreman's theater held 40 people, and I was religious about going to the things he used to do. 
And so my idea of success was to create a singular thing that would have people follow it and be that dedicated. Again, having said that, getting touched but by the Bill mass Evans, media. Bill Evans cool. never got to have all the stuff that you have. <laughs> all right, Bill, I mean, well, those artists. shot a lot of it in his own. I know, I yeah, think, he was so. a, an addict, and, you know, the famous the accident after the 63 show and everything. Um, but I think it was 63, that great live show that he did, that they did in, uh, in the village, and then they had that, they had that car accident and one of the guys died. See, I don't and, even know that. I don't know um, that story. I, I could be wrong. We used to go to see him all out. the time. He played some little dive all the time. And we were there, you know, as close. I could reach out and touch him. And it was a religious experience because he was amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, this the, was mid-career, I'd say. I remember the first time I didn't come to that music till very late. And, you know, probably till I was 30 or something. And the first time that I realized who played on Kind of Blue. And then, you yeah. know, you go, yeah. you get that. And then you go, the first time you go like, oh, wait, it's not just Miles Davis. There are these other people. And then you, <laughs> and, then, and then you kind of find all of their, you know, all their records. It is yeah. Mind-blowing. And Evans in particular. Early Herbie Hancock is some amazing... Herbie Hancock is on a Sam Rivers album. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's stuff that... Uh, well, that Blue Note, that the original Herbie Hancock stuff's amazing. Yes. I um, mean, there's a guy who is so good that he kind of goes past it and then says, okay, I'm going to make these pop numbers that'll just make me as rich as God. Well, yes. I mean, Whatever but, that is. But, you know... Um, but it's interesting because... When you, you talk about this stuff, I, so much of your work, you know, the joke that I didn't want to, I was about to say and then I held back, but f it is, uh, I was going to say, you know, spoken by the guy who did 70 episodes of Law and Order Criminal Intent, yes, you know. that's right. And the... And a Steven Seagal sequel. Yeah. And, and so much of your music, of your work is about your early work and then even the, thematically through like everything you do has to do with um, alienation and belonging. Yeah. And recon life. Yeah, reconciling yeah. those things. Or I, so I wonder how, like, you know, the guy who, who writes the thing about, um, and I don't want to misquote you, but who, who essentially writes the thing about, you know, uh, death and life being um, working at a Starbucks in West Hampton. Uh, <laughs> in a sense, anyone who's had a long show business career and worked on network television has worked at the, has been a, is basically a barista at a Starbucks in West Hampton in some way. We all, you know, we, and ha, so how, how do you, how do you like reconcile those things in terms of staying alive as an artist and knowing, like you said, the fringe that attracts you so much with also liking this other stuff, the stuff that commercial success brings you? Well, it's, I mean, if you go through the looking glass and look at it all from a different perspective, which is, I mean, it took me a while to even understand that that's what I was doing. It's not like I'm on a mission to shock or a mission to uh, turn everything upside down or whatever. It's more like a mission to experience. And so, for example, the Seagal movie where I get to play a bad guy yes. in a big feature film, um, that was something, I mean, if I were going to have a bucket list, that was in the bucket list. That was That was something that I wanted to be able to do someday. And yet, I don't want to do it all the time. I mean, I think just my current work sort of speaks for how I keep changing it up because that's what I, 
uh, it isn't that I get bored and I wouldn't for the life of me claim that like somehow the person who, who goes and let's say writes TV every day for 40 years or somebody who acts in features constantly that somehow I've decided I don't want to do that. Believe me, I would love to sell out. I would love to be that guy who's a, who's a master craftsman yeah. of, let's say, writing a half hour show or an hour drama or whatever it is that you do or a novel. Uh, maybe I'm a, a jack of all trades and master of none. I don't know. But from my experiential point of view of like, wow, it would be great to do this. It would be great to do that. That's kind of led me for my whole life. And um, like, like the law and order situation, when they finally killed me off after three years or so of doing it, it was good that they killed me off because it was an addiction that I would have, I would have happily been walking Still. into the room with a cup of coffee, saying my seven lines and pulling insane money. Uh, but I had always wanted to do Law & Order. I had always wanted to be a regular on a regular show and not a comedy, a show where I came in and I was in a sort of a dark place. It kind of hails back to... Uh, Ilya Kazan type acting where those movies where you're very earnest and you're very serious. I mean, I think that's what the whole law and order, the whole procedural drama thing is grounded in is people that ne who, they never smile. They never laugh. They never tell each other jokes. I mean, go to any police precinct. Guys are screwing around the detectives. That's sure. Richard Priceland, right? But in, in, in the world of law and order, we're all very serious. And I wanted to live in that world for a while, and I got to. But at the other hand, it was it was great that they said no, and I could see why it would stop. appeal to you know so much of the work is also about like it, it seems to me that you um, recognize uh, you've always recognized like the tribes the the various tribes that exist within like humanity. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, cause you know, you you're I mean, even you say you when you started out, you realized you had these sort of like twelve characters in uh -huh. these 12 archetypes. The 12 tribes. And, well, no, but I wasn't speaking <laughs> like uh, Jewish tribes. But, um, but it does seem like you had this tribal allegiance with like the poor and the disenfranchised. And then in a way, the only characters who spoke honestly very often, who weren't totally full of in the worlds that you created, were those who were kept on the outside. I mean, yeah, you know, well, that's, that's also a dramatic convention. I mean, not to be simplistic about... O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, and Edward Albee, but everybody's drunk in their plays, and they're all saying all kinds of truthful things. This is like a technique you do in drama to to, to use the outsider to say the thing that can't be said. Um, I was just looking for energetic voices, and I'm a classic suburban kid who came to New York. I lived in Times Square in 1975, and it was just wild on the street. And maybe the New Yorkers, the native New Yorkers like yourself, were just walking by this stuff and not even really noticing it because you grew up with it. But I was enthralled by everything that was happening on the street and the subway. It was all new. So I, and, and somehow it entered me. I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not really a born funny person, but I'm a born mimic. And when well, clear, things are yeah, around yeah, yeah. me, I just absorb them and they start coming out of me, out of my... Out of but my it's, does it still happen in the same way? Because I, when I think about that early work, and I've, I haven't said this to anybody who's ever done this show before, um, but this is true. Like when when you made uh, when you wrote talk radio, and I saw it. I think I was twenty one, and um, and it uh, it really 
it pissed me off. It made me so angry because you had captured this thing uh, that was somewhere, when you say we missed it or whatever, um, you had done it. Like you'd cracked the thing, man. And you had found a voice to articulate uh, what was the, the exact hypocrisy, the exact uh, bullshit that, that my friends and I saw and were trying to articulate and couldn't. And you had given it voice on a, a, in an epic way. And I remember watching the movie and then going back and reading the play and noticing the differences and loving it. And then when I started to want to really do this later and become an artist, I, uh, the influence was so big in terms of the dialogue and the, the honesty with which the characters, these male characters primarily express this stuff that I like stopped reading or watching your stuff for a long time because I was just like, I don't want, you know, it's, it was like too intense and it, it was a, an enormous. It wasn't that long. Cause you, you got into sex, drugs, rock and roll and the show. And then you told people about but that it. Was years yeah. late. That was years later. Yeah. It was a few years later. It wasn't that much later. It was 91 or so. And that, and talk radio was 87. Yeah. But those to you, maybe four, when, when you were a big four years, yeah, when you were that age, it was years later. And you're thinking about it. And yes, I heard sex, drugs and rock and roll and it killed me. Um, but when you were, when that stuff was coming that fast to you, it, it, that moment in time when it all started happening and you created this, it, it reminds me, and maybe I'm, I'm romanticizing it because of the import that that work had for me then, but it reminds me of like Dylan um, in Don't Look Back when he's at this typewriter and it's all, you know, when Joan Baez is there and it's like, it's kind of arriving and he's trying to grab well, it's a, it's it. Well, it, it was a lot of stuff that was bursting out of me. I mean, we're doing this project now, the hundred monologues.com yeah. that is where different friends of mine each take one of these monologues that I did. There's a hundred of them. How did there end up being a hundred? I mean, I, I could write monologues today, I suppose, but they would be like crafted and not juicy. There was like a juice that had to excuse the No, that's metaphor, what I'm wondering but about. It was, yeah. but, and and I, I honestly, I mean, I don't mean to... I don't know how to put this. I was just listening to, uh, was it Kendrick Lamar today? Yeah, oh, me and I too. was looking at all the, I was listening to all the ideas. He couldn't, he was just rushing with all this stuff he wants to get out, out, out. And I, and I thought, yeah, that I remember feeling like that. Like I had journals and I had all these things and there were so many ideas and they were all crashing into each other. They didn't necessarily even make sense. Then in the case of talk radio, it was just something that kind of worked out because I had one big overriding idea, which I don't even know that anybody even picked up on watching the movie or, or watching the play. And that was that I wanted fame so bad at that point that I would do anything. But I was at an age where I was watching other people hitting fame. And I was watching John Belushi on, on Saturday Night Live. And when John Belushi died of an overdose, which was, that was what spurred me to write talk radio, because it was like, look, I'm dancing as fast everybody look at me look at me look at me i'm gonna do it you want me to do this you want me to to be on fire i'm on fire and i had been doing a stage show around that time that was pretty aggressive called the ricky paul show and it was maniacal people we would go to punk clubs people would throw things at the stage i mean i went to germany i sig heiled the audience and goose stepped around the stage and stuff anything to ignite some kind of yes. insanity this is around 80 
And, um, and I thought, I can't keep this up. If I keep this up, plus I was, I had bad habits with, uh, right. with drugs and stuff. And so I thought, this is not going anywhere good. And I wrote this um, monologue, which I ended up recording with Frank Zappa, actually, in 1986. And you can find it online somewhere. It's called Blood on the Canvas. And in it, a manager tells this young performer that uh, he should do this, this, and this on his stage show. And the performer says, well, if I do all those things, which involved sticking an M80 up his butt and cutting his dick off with a straight razor, and all he says, I'll die. And the, and the manager says, don't you want to succeed at this business? <laughs> the name you'll have right. for yourself if you do this. Like, think of Liza. Think of, he starts saying, which is things that managers had said to me. And I thought, this is where this is going. I'm on a track toward killing myself. But what I wanted to look at was why. What is it? Who am I that I need this so bad? And so I built this guy from scratch, this Barry Champlain. I did a talk radio guy, not a stand-up comic. You may remember there was a movie with Tom Hanks around that time Punchline. called Punchline. Yeah. And the problem with putting a stand-up comic in a movie really hard. is that they're never that funny. I mean, you're never going to hit Chappelle level. You're never going to hit the level of a truly... Because if you could do that, you wouldn't do... In fact, all the guys that are really good at that, except for Richard Pryor, usually aren't that good actors in things. So I thought, how Louis, can I Louis make... Louis is a good actor, I think. Louis C.K. is oh, a yeah, good actor. Yeah. Well, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. Yes. But so, got, so, thinking... the, the, so the idea is, what can I do where I'll have a guy answering phones, and then I can spend like weeks thinking up some clever thing that he's going to say back to the caller, and it'll seem like the character is incredibly fast and sharp. And that was kind of, I mean, people still think that I can think as fast as that guy could think in the movie. So anyway, it worked on stage the, and it worked yeah, in the movie. Yeah, that's the magic trick, um, yeah. for sure. Um, and... I saw the revival, and I loved what you said um, a afterwards, which uh, I read in one of the interviews uh, that I read or in an essay you wrote where you said, I, uh, you know, this plays up, but I didn't write it, this guy 25 years ago. Wrote <laughs> I it. forgot I said that. And you're, uh, very wise, indeed. Yeah, though it seems like you've reconnected somehow to it. But I, one thing that was interesting that I read um, in an introduction that you wrote to w one of your collections was that you describe yourself back when you came to New York. You said, I was in New York for three years, and um, I already, uh, like, in exile from traditional theater. Yes. I mean, uh, the way someone else might phrase it is, I hadn't yet broken in. But, <laughs> you, like, you had to cast yourself as being um, completely unwelcome. In fact, e exiled from it and i'm wondering is that like a boston thing what do you think that's about for what do you think uh, that for motivation well at the time i thought it might have something to do with me being armenian that i had been an outsider in my hometown of irish catholic kids that my family history what i knew of it involved tremendous violence back in the ottoman empire and that my grandfather told me about this so for this reason i was always empathetic with outsiders people suffering and so forth well how bad was it when you were growing up for you i mean oh, i was in, I, well when i was a kid it was just fights all the time I, I was just saying i was just doing uh, an episode of elementary the other day yeah. and i was saying to uh johnny uh miller i said do you remember when you used to have to eat dirt? He says, I don't know if I ever actually had to eat it. And because uh, I know he's in, he's fighting is something in his head too. Like I, it's in my head that when I walk in a room and there's men there, 
who can I take and who can't I take? I know that sounds crazy for an old guy like me, but the fighting was so much a part of me growing up. I mean, it was there was a threshold I hit when I was, I guess I was 16, and I was in the middle of something with this guy, and he took a bite out of me, and the, I actually had the teeth marks in me for years afterwards, and I was not a good fighter. I always got beat up. I mean, this is, I have to make that very clear. But um, yeah, the, the the endless of this stuff, I didn't I didn't like it. Um, you didn't and, like getting beat. <laughs> you didn't like getting beat. Well, getting my friends, up. my my Irish buddies, they thought it was fun. You know, like we would end up walking down some road after a party, and a bunch of guys that we had dissed at the party would roll up, and all of a sudden fists are flying, and people are getting thrown in trees. And I go home, and my shirt is torn off, and I have a black eye and a fat lip. And my I'm saying to my mom, "Well, me and Scott were you know horsing around." Oh, you wouldn't after tell what happened. Well, they would be, I mean, as very conservative Armenians. They would, they would be, they wouldn't like this at all. But and you, I think, you faced look, it for being Armenian. You, no, it wasn't Armenian. It was I had black curly hair. I had darker skin than other kids. I was weird. I mean, I think that's what it really all comes from. I don't think it has anything to do with being Armenian. I don't. I think it has to do with I was a weird kid, and whatever weird meant in those days. Today, they have all kinds of words for this stuff, and I wonder what an analysis of me. What kind of words? Oh, like he's got a cusp on some kind of Aspergery thing, or he's got um, AD, a bunch of letters. I don't sure. know what they all stand. So he should take Ritalin or something. Because years later, when I was sort of in my druggy periods, there it wasn't just the sedatives that made me feel calm. It was the stimulants made me feel calm. And today I look back and I go, hmm, that sounds like an, you know, an overactive, crazed kid, which was the way I felt. I spent a lot of time by myself and I had all this energy. And then what happened was, um, and this happened to a lot of people like me, around 1968, it became very cool to be weird. Right. This happens every once in a while. We're going through this right now, that sort of big bang theory type. If you're a geeky, weird guy, you're cool. Well, in those days, it was a hippie thing. So all you had to do was grow your hair long and smoke weed, and you were the coolest guy in town. And, right. and everything you were shifted 15 from and six, You were 15 and 68 or something like that. Yeah, well, for me, it was more came into focus when I was more 16, 17, a couple of years later. But starting at that time was when it became cool to be an outsider. And so all of a sudden... I went from being, you know, the brunt to being the coolest guy in my high school. By the time I leave high school, I'm super cool. The only problem was I then went to the University of Chicago and found out that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was uh, because I was the I was the smartest guy in my town as far as I was concerned. What had the how did it how did it manifest though that you were uh how did I how to present to you that you weren't smart enough? I wonder if this is like an ADHD thing where you couldn't like kind of was it that you couldn't buckle they down had, and they, really do they new were, stuff? Well, they were trying to find kids from sort of disadvantaged towns to go to these. I mean, Chicago is an Ivy, but it's like an Ivy. Oh, University it's of Chicago. In, it's yeah. intense, and so here I am. I mean, I remember my first days in at University of Chicago. I'm still wearing a leather jacket. And this is before people wore leather jackets because they were they just you wear leather jackets because you come from a place where people wear leather jackets, and like. I'd never written a paper, okay? I had never written a paper before I went to college. I didn't know what a paper was. I had never touched a typewriter. I hadn't done all these things that all these kids who came from prep school had done. So I kind of got by with my wits. Unfortunately, I was 
dealing weed and acid at the same time. So it all got kind of difficult to keep everything in focus. And I eventually skidded off the road in, in my junior year there. Um, and I had, I did learn how to write there. I think that it, it, there was a discipline involved with writing of keeping things spare and editing that helped me a lot. And then I kind of did nothing for a little bit. And then I thought, well, you're an actor. So even though that makes no sense to pursue an acting career, go to this other place, Oberlin, which for me, after Chicago, after living in the south side of Chicago and going to a school that intense, Oberlin like was a, a day in the park for me. And I just went there and had fun and screwed around with girls and smoked tons of weed and, and graduated as a theater guy. So you weren't, you didn't consider yourself a writer then? You said you learned how to write, but you didn't consider yourself I, like because the smartest guy from your high school was it in your head that you were gonna gonna write stuff to perform, or did you just no, want to be? I had no discipline whatsoever. I mean, again, I, I don't want to make a big thing about the fact that I come from a kind of blue collar town, but I've met a lot of kids here in the city in some of the volunteer work I do where they have the idea that they want to do this thing, but they literally don't know how to get there. They've never had a good teacher. They've never actually, so particularly in the hip hop scene, you meet kids all the time. are yeah. like, I'm a poet and all this junk. And they don't really know what it means to get down and write every day. So what happened with me was that I had the idea it'd be great to be a writer. I read a lot of books, but I never wrote anything. If I wrote anything, it was a half of a page of some incredibly sophomoric notions of thoughts about life, which I thought that's what happened when I went to Chicago. I went to Chicago. This is what I was into when I got to Chicago. I was into Jimi Hendrix yeah. and reading Herman Hess. And that made me in my mind, the coolest guy in the world. I go to Chicago and they laugh at me. It's like, Jimi Hendrix. Read Herman, Herman we're listening Hess, right. to Ornette Coleman. What are you talking about? Jimi Hendrix and Herman Hess. I read that when I was, uh, you know, 11. And so, well, wait a minute, what are, I don't understand. And all of a sudden, it was like this huge crash. Right. You thought because you could, uh, you actually understood Magister Ludi that uh, you right. were ahead of the game. Right. And uh, so which, then, by I the way, actually... afterwards, you can explain that book to me <laughs> later. <laughs> but uh, I, but I, so then years, years, years later, working on the monologue things, which I did with improvs and transcribing them, I basically learned how to write while doing the monologue shows. Then when I did Drinking in America in 1986, at American Place got a lot of attention. Scott Rudin, who was a new executive at Fox yeah. with the movie division, was looking for hot kids to sign. And he signed me to write a screenplay. I'd never written a screenplay before. And that was when I wrote my first screenplay, which is, was absolutely atrocious. But I got into this idea that I had some value to the people out in LA and that they should pay me money to so you were able to keep masturbate. your sense of, but you were able to masturbate good. They'll, by the way, they will still pay you money to masturbate. It'll be different people paying you, but they yes. still get money for that. But are, uh, how did you hold on to, because a lot of kids who have um, those issues, I had them. I mean, part of what I, I was, part of what, um, when I saw talk radio made me angry was I was at that time, like a blocked writer full on. I definitely had 80, 80 deep. I couldn't finish stuff. And so when I saw that, like, um, somehow a guy who had actually done this thing and, and brought this character into the world, it was like, um, how? How did that happen? Because I, I was so frustrated not being able to. How did you stop yourself? How did you hold on to, like, your sense of self? Like, you said, oh, they should pay me to do this. Like, what made you know that you were of 
some kind of oh just a totally grandiose legend in my own mind i had no worth on that score and oh so it's thin you think it was shallow was it thin or was it deep your belief no it's a belief it's that kind of chutzpah that people have who think they can just do anything that they set their mind to oh oh, they thought you were a jew is why they beat you up eric let's just say it you just i mean you look like you when you say chutzpah they think you're one of uh you know one of uh, my people i know that i know that i have a genius at one thing and that is i become other people as an actor i don't know why i can do this i don't know where it comes from and that was where so that was like if there was the gas that went in the tank to make to write dramas to write anything it was uh i could become other people so i can become this guy in the talk radio thing really become him i become there are times when i'm on stage and i will be playing a guy and i believe that i could stand up and walk away and the guy would still be there that's how crazy this stuff is eventually over time and i don't know to what degree of success i would transpose those guys to the different people who are speaking in a play i'm writing or in a novel or whatever and i'd say okay you're not you know, just make that guy your guy. And then it could even be women, like in my novel, Maul, there are women in that novel. Yeah. It's not me, but I have this thing where, you know, it's like I I become other people and I can feel it. And sometimes it happens without me wanting it to happen. My family is embarrassed of me because when I'm around somebody who is giving off a very strong personality, I start uh, I start mirroring them with, up, unconsciously, man. and they and they're like, "We got to go now. We got to stop talking to that Indian guy that way." And I will just keep. I don't notice that I'm doing it. I I don't know what this is, and I don't know why it happens. It, for me, it's. It's significant because I'm fascinated by the notion of identity and the fact that you're sitting there and I'm sitting there here and we're in two different places. But we have this sense that whatever's going on inside of you must be similar to what's going on inside of me. But we have no proof of that. And that's well, it's 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 the Emersonian idea, right? It's I mean, it's the the notion that sort of like if you're honest about the thing that's deepest inside of you and you somehow find a way to give voice to it it will resonate with others who have Absolutely. the same thing. It's the um, essence of theater. People watch theater because they're, they're, they're like, what would it be like to walk in that guy's shoes? You can, you can do it in theater. For some reason, movies, it works differently. But in, in theater, you are, you will, in other words, you can watch a very negative guy in the theater, a guy who's not a nice person, and it'll be a full-blown theater experience. Whereas in movies, it tends to be like a hero. You want to be your you know matt damon guy in your movie they you that's who i want to be that guy he looks good he plays good poker he he beats the other guys and he's going to go off and win the world series of poker yeah i I mean that character's (laughs) not really i I don't think like a traditional movie hero but it is uh he's matt damon he just emanates what i wish i could be and then went on went on to prove that in his in uh born and that kind of yeah, stuff. Well, sure, we all wish we could uh, be, just kill people with our bare hands. Brain. I always ask my trainer at the gym, just show me this, just show me how to kill somebody with my bare hands. That's all I, I need to know. I don't really need to do all this exercising. I just want to be able to know that the next time that some guy f- with me in a bar, I can just like put my thumb up, pop his eyeball out and finish this right now. Oh, you want the thumb eyeball pop? <laughs> That's what you're looking Actually, for. Actually, he taught me a different one. 
Do you, uh, if you slam the chest hard enough, fragments of bone go from the rib into the heart and kills the guy. Anyway. But so, um, yes, you had this ability. I will just to drift sort of, off into you know, any topic. You have empathize with people and, and, and find their characters. But you had said something and, and about, that. it's interesting what you say about in movies, what you're looking for. You know, I, uh, you said this thing that gave me a lot of hope, uh, be, which is that... Um, it's about character, and you said theater is character. Everything else is window dressing, and um, you wrote that. And that's <laughs> I always love been all these things I said. my hope and instinct. But you know, like David Mamet, who I'd say around the same time that I found your work, I found Mamet's work, and you know, he kind of says the exact opposite, right? He says characters are just lines on a page. You have to. The only question that's worth asking in theater is what happens next. My sympathies have always been with the. Uh, people who say character, but, but sometimes I think that that's like, um, laziness because it, manifesting character through dialogue, although it's not easy, it's straightforward. And the questions are solvable in a, a different way than having to solve them through story. Do you still think character is the thing? Well, st st oh yeah. I think character is what it's all about. I, but the missing part from the Mamedian theory yeah. and from what a lot of people think is that it's not just the writer. The writer is working in conjunction with an, the artist who is the actor, who brings... The interpretive artist. Uh, yeah, and, and sometimes a lot of other things, too. I mean, it's not just that the actor is doing something consciously. The actor has gone off and lived life and is bringing this package, which gives you the impression of a tremendous backstory. I mean, when you're watching Kevin Spacey in House of Cards... There's all kinds of things that you're reading off of him that don't have anything to do with what he's actually doing in the moment. He has that look now, that like worn look that looks like a guy that's been through all kinds of things. And all of this is some is part it's it's hard to put your finger on what's going on there. When you put that man together with some great writing and we have to uh, acknowledge that Kevin Spacey is smart enough to figure out where the good writing is, which is also part of this yes. this equation. Then you put it all together, and it's that package that creates the character, and that's what we're what we're watching. As far as um, story, though, I mean, I'm a great. I mean, my favorite novelist is Nepal, and and he writes with very little. Um, very little description. He's always just moving the story forward, but he does it in this brilliant, stripped-down way where it's very compelling. Yeah, um, my favorite writer is um, Murakami, and 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 it's funny because Murakami, you would think at first, isn't really moving the story forward because his stuff yeah, he'll is sit so there for strange. A long time. Yeah, but in fact, hmm. there is always a dramatic question that's been raised, usually early, even if it's just a cat went missing. Right, and it's enough. To to make you to align you with this character's need and and kind of buys you then the time for the to also worry about the character trying to keep the pot of boiling water going because he wants to make um, a meal. Uh, but novels buy you it in a way that it's it's to me like the question people who try to write you know movies or plays wrestle with you know what's self indulgent in the character thing what's the part that you just get off on versus the part that's there for the audience and and how do you how do you well again for me the motor starts with this thing in me that i don't completely understand that is this mimic thing that i do that where i become other people when i first started writing the monologues 
what I would do is turn a tape recorder on, cut myself loose in a room and just start talking. And the guy would say things and I would write down what the guy was saying. So that's almost like automatic writing yeah. at that point. Then it was my job to edit down from maybe 20 minutes of talking to a tight um, um, monologue. And then I would work with Joe Bonnie, my director, and we would continue to refine it. So it's all starting from this you know, probably, that's why I draw probably the, a different that, principle than than sure. a lot of other writers. Well, yeah, that's why I drew the comparison to Dylan during the you know uh, during Don't Look Back. You know because and just after it, when you, you can just feel like when he was writing It's All Right, Mama, that that stuff was just pouring in, and he was editing. Right, he was somehow hearing it. It's just yeah. I mean, so much of what you do as an artist is outside your control, and you think you know what you're doing, but you often don't know what you're doing very often i mean in my case very simply i will try to write something scary and it'll people are laughing in the audience and i'm like what's going on here this has happened since i was a very young kid like you know to talk radio it is a dramatic piece but there was a lot of funny stuff in there too i guess well I oliver took out all the funny stuff when he converted it into a movie if you go back and look at the play it's got more funny things the play has a lot of i saw the play when it was with in, liev. With liev and there are a lot of laughs in the play i thought yeah yeah um, and liev was was amazing in the role um i agree when now i want to just talk about the uh you've written a book which we're going to get to you've written a, a, many books now but um We'll get to the the book that you have coming out April 21st, Operation Nemesis, uh, the assassination plot that avenged the Armenian genocide. But um, the night that you and I first met, we met at a, a poker game. And um, I mentioned that uh, I often will uh, quote your one of your lines from uh, Deconstructing Harry, you know, uh, he's not a Jewish man. And... You said people come up to you and say that uh, frequently or talk about that movie. But you said, and I thought this was a great thing about growing as an artist. And I think it's a significant moment because you said that doing that, you discovered something that um, changed the way you worked for oh, yeah. from then on. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Uh, well, it was a Woody Allen movie. It wasn't a very, it wasn't a major role in the movie i i come and go so fast i don't know that people even notice i'm there but i uh i took it very seriously um woody allen had makes adult dramas he's an american director who makes adult dramas without dramedy i mean there can be dramedy in what he's doing but he has made some very successful and when I say adult, I mean we don't know where it's going, so it's not genre. I don't know that it's going to end this way or that. I can't guess. That's, a great that, point. That, yeah. that's what makes his movies so watchable if you're a grown up. And um, so I really wanted to participate in this process of his. The first step was because I was playing a very sort of outsized, orthodox Jewish guy, I said to him, I get the feeling from the lines that this is supposed to be some very broad whiny nasal jewishy guy like this and i said the problem for me is that he mentions the holocaust and i cannot i cannot do that i can't make this broad if he says anything about the holocaust he says you do what you feel you need to do you just do it the way you need to do it so here i am with these seven lines and um i'm in my i'm in my trailer woody works in a very old-fashioned process of lighting things takes forever which nobody does anymore 
And I had this, I'd reached a point in my career where I wasn't going to go hang out at craft services and complain about my agent all day long with the other actors. I was going to stay in my trailer. I was going to keep looking at those six lines. But you said that was the, you, you said to me that b before that, you would have found something to distract yourself yeah. in the trailer. You would have either. Oh, yeah. I'm you, you, would have, you would have just found something else, but you made a decision. Once I know the lines or feel I know the lines, that's that. Then I stop and then I feel it's my job to relax myself before I go out. But in this case, I just kept going over and over the same lines again and again and again. And what I learned that day was that there was a lot more in those lines than I had originally seen. That there were patterns, that there were deeper meanings, That which is crazy because I think of myself as a pretty smart guy. So why didn't I understand all that in the first place? Uh, and it was just a process of saying there's a lot more work to do here than you thought. And that's something I've brought to the work since. I'm glad because I want to grow as an artist. I'm always I'm doing a play with Jessica Hecht, a new uh, uh, Gold, Daniel Goldfarb play up at Williamstown this summer. And to be honest, I love the play, but I want to work with Jessica because... Um, uh, and also Hallie Pfeiffer is in the play as well. But I want to do it with Jessica because Jessica's so good she that she will make my game step up because she listens and she's totally present. I can't do any fake stuff with her. I can't do any gimmicks. Uh, I try very hard uh, so to do that's that. How you hold, so that, that's how you hold yourself to a standard. It's a new, a new standard of not being phony or full of mm -hmm. That doesn't have to do with money. Like, you know, that doesn't have to do with this other stuff. It's like you're determined to really be a great artist still. I, I, I have this thing I can do and I, and I will try to keep getting better at it as I go along. I always thought I was pretty good. I mean, as a kid, I was, I was a big pain in the neck for teachers because I was the kid that comes in and like, I know it all and don't tell me anything. And that was a problem for me in high school and in college. But um, more recently, I understand what a gift this is to me that I can even do this thing. Yeah. So why not honor it and try and, you know, explore it as fully as possible. I didn't even really know why I enjoyed acting for a long time. The first time I ever got applause in high school, it felt great because I was such a nudnik that I just to have this many people like me at yeah. once was great. Then later there were kudos and there was, you know, some cash and prizes. But was the there ever a time of self-doubt? Oh, sure. When I was in college, I had I'd never thought about stage fright, and they taught me that in college. Very unuseful skill. Um, <laughs> what happened? But, uh, nothing. They had me thinking about what I was doing too much. I, I just don't want to think about it. I just want to... I, but I know now that what I need to do is really know those lines and then get out there and cut loose and become another person. And that was the thing that I realized I really loved doing when you did it is pretending to be somebody else. When I am somebody else, for me, it's a transformative experience. It's such a release from my own existence. And I've heard other... Uh, De Niro talked about it one time, and he so rarely does interviews. Interviews and he said, you get to be this other person without the consequences. And it's an incredibly freeing, fantastical thing. And if you've, especially like doing Broadway, when, uh, when I did the Donald Margulies play, Time Stands Still, yeah. uh, to do the exact same moments, the same words, the same lines, the same movements, night after night, eight times a week, month after month, it's 
excuse, I don't know if this is the right word, existential. I mean, here you are again, here I am again, saying this thing to Laura Linney, saying this thing to Alicia Silverstone. We're having this dialogue and we've been here before many times, it's like the Twilight Zone or something. And I love it. I love it. I'm sorry. It sounds so No, it sounds um... weird, actually. I feel like I'm being very, I don't know what. Some, I, I hate expressing enthusiasm because it sounds kind of uncool, but um, I do love it. I love, I love theatrical acting like a lover. A lover I love so much that it, it may, I get afraid of it. I'm afraid of it. And that's why I avoided it for so long was because I didn't want my heart to be broken. And it just happens to be the thing I love. You don't have to worry about the enthusiasm thing. Uh, David Foster Wallace wrote, by now it's a long time ago that we're past the age of irony we're in post irony where earnestness is uh actually the coolest thing you can trade in so i think i'm pretty earnest i'm too earnest sometimes but uh yeah and the weird thing is is that there i have a public persona of this sort of cynical guy that is talks the way i talk um I can't tell you how many times people tell you, you sound like Anthony Bourdain. And then I, and I go, I do. What does that mean? So I go and I watch Anthony Bourdain. I go, that's what I look like. That's what I sound like is this. this oh, but it can't be surprising but, to me. But You're it's the a guy... persona I play as I'm walking down. It's not who the real me is. I'm a Well, how's complete... it different than the real you? The real me is this mushy knucklehead who, like... I don't know, whines and is... Um, but, I mean, you're the guy who says that you're, uh, you're God... Uh, doesn't want things to come, you know, he doesn't want things to be too easy. He's like Lou Reed and, and doesn't oh, want to sell sure. out. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, I think this idea of... Oh, I mean, my God. All right. God doesn't want you to sell out, right? He doesn't want to sell out. Like Lou Reed. Yes. Yes. Uh, That's which, my God. That's yeah, right. Your God who is... Um, he doesn't want life to be too easy for any of us because then what would happen um, in the monologue that Jessica does on 100 Monologues, yeah. well, then things would be too easy if we just had fun all the time and we didn't have tragedy in our life. Then what would that be like? That yeah. would be horrible. Yeah, when you wonder um, why people think that you have like this cool sort of this affect, I mean, in that same, in that same monologue, right, you talk about uh, God only using one, uh, having only use one nail in, in the... Uh, through <laughs> Jesus' foot because uh, he might have other uses for the other nails later. Yeah, he's building a shed behind heaven. Yeah. So he uh, needs to save that. Other yeah. long nail. <laughs> well, I guess... Well, let's say... Let's look at it this way. If I like pretending to be certain people, maybe yes. my favorite thing to pretend to be is me. And this is a persona that I play that is very enjoyable for me, this uh, hip guy or whatever. Well, I no, am. I wonder if that uh, thing... About, I wonder if that, that thing you talked about at the beginning about, um, yes, the financial security, but also this regard, um, you know, somebody who was getting picked on and who would walk into a room as an other, who now gets to walk into a room as a different kind of other, you could see why that's really appealing, why, you, why this, whatever this persona that was crafted, it's to a very specific effect, which is, you know, you come to, uh, you know, you came to this poker game where you know, a lot of people want to find a poker game where everybody's worse than them. You're a good poker player, but you tell the story the way you became good was by playing with guys better than you, yeah. men and women. And then you certainly walked into a poker game that I play in where you can't say you're a big favorite. And I wish you wouldn't wear that leather jacket all the time that you won, that you paid for with all the money you won off of me. I really resent it. <laughs> no, you really kind of throw it in my face every time I see you. Well, no, the listen, here's the thing. Um, it's interesting. I, I was trying to think about why you love poker and what it is about sitting there in this pretty in finding games that are aggressive and 
it's interesting that you want to solve this somehow. And I also see you studying everybody and trying to figure them out. And it's uh, I love watching people. And poker is a great opportunity to watch people. And it's for free. And you can do it well, reasonably. I'm good enough now so that it's sort of free for me. Yeah, you're a good but, poker uh, player. But I go, uh, like, to go to Vegas or any any of these. I mean, I was just in Detroit. And they have these really giant casinos that are kind of run down. And... Uh, it's great. I mean, there's just always new people coming to the table, doing things, doing weird things, saying things, arguing with each other. And it's just, a, for me, it's a show and I love watching it. And then of course, there's you guys who um, have your own, I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting because every time a new person comes to the table, the dynamic must change to, yeah. uh, to deal with that new person. Um, and there's, I don't think anybody has solved the, the, pro, the poker problem yet of what happens when you go to a table, you don't know who's there and how do you play better? I mean, people think there's some kind of trick there is, if you're playing terrible players, but when you're playing good players, there's a lot of things you gotta be watching. But my and, point bringing it up is that you can walk into any poker. room now and you're Eric Bogosian and you've accomplished a bunch of stuff that a room full of guys at a poker table are going to accord you a measure of like, I mean, well, take your money if we can, but it will accord you a measure of respect and, and interest and engagement. I imagine that feels good. Yeah, it's all good. But I, I mean, the, the, the main thing I'm looking at on any given day is, I mean, this is only a, a fraction of where I spend my time or what I think about in, in my life. Uh, the, the question is, how do I engage in the most full way in whatever the 24 hours I have on any given day. And um, uh, oddly, this will segue into talking about Operation Nemesis because this, to, was yeah. a, this was a, a, the notion that I'd heard about this assassin who had killed Talat Pasha in 1921. And for all I could tell, this would make a great screenplay. So I just started working on a screenplay. And I know that the book has already gotten really great reviews. You have like people like Richard Price have read it and said great things about it. I know Publishers Weekly, like Starred, reviewed it. And... Um, and it's not a novel. It's a, it's. Yeah. Well, what I found out was uh, I'm working on this screenplay. And then I find out that everything this guy said in court, which was that he'd seen his mother beheaded right before. His, so, so his thing was I had to assassinate this guy because I had seen such horrible things happen to my family on this deportation caravan. This story had been repeated in other places. This, as far as I knew, was the story. I was going to just make it into a screenplay. The minute I start investigating it, I come across uh, an older book from the 1980s that no one really knows about called Resistance and Revenge, in which they explain that this guy, along with a whole bunch of other guys, were actually an assassination squad operating out of Massachusetts. They had sent assassins all over Europe. And they didn't just kill Talat. They killed Talat. They killed uh, Jamal Pasha. They killed Saeed Halim Pasha. They killed the basically the leadership of the Ottoman Empire during the Armenian Genocide. So the, the question is, why hasn't this story been told? Well, it had been stole, told by Jacques de Rogy in France in the 1980s. And you, could, you can get this book, uh, Resistance and Revenge, but it's a dense book. It's, it's, it's very detailed on a level that's it's kind of hard to get through if you don't know this stuff. And I was like, I got to write a book 
that is going to kind of crack this open and make it readable, like a like a Vanity Fair article, like, hmm, I didn't know this about codfish. This is incredible. <laughs> so I'm going to re keep reading, not because I care about this specific thing, but what an amazing thing. A bunch of assassins operating out of Syracuse, New York, and Watertown, Massachusetts, and Hartford, Connecticut. One guy's a CPA. One guy is a... Uh, He's a life insurance salesman, uh, an editor of a newspaper, put together a group of veterans who then go to these capital cities around, and they hunt down these guys and kill them in cold blood. They end up killing eight to ten people. Then they close the whole thing down in 1922. The guys disperse, and except for a couple who got caught by the Cheka in, in the Soviet Union who went to Siberia, everybody else lived to be an old man in California. And nobody knew about this thing. So I thought, I have to write this. Why haven't we heard this story before? Because, first of all, Turkey denies that the genocide happened at all. And uh, many Armenians do not want to foster the idea of Armenians as violent. Because there had been some very violent episodes in the 1980s. So um, I didn't really care about any of that. Did you I get resistance from Armenians who asked you not, didn't want you to do it, or did you find enthusiasm? There was, well, this is interesting because the, the, this group called themselves Operation Nemesis. They were an armed wing of a bigger organization called the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, which exists to this day, the ARF. And the ARF exists. They're, they're huge in the United States. And uh, those guys had been sort of tracking me. I've been working on this book for a long time. How so long? They were, this has been almost seven years I spent on this book. So about midway, when they started hearing that I was putting this together, I was getting contacted. People wanted to know what I was up to. Um, I started to interview some of them. At any rate, somewhere along the line, in the last year or so, they started feeling that I might be okay. And as of, honestly, last weekend, I was given the blessing from the organization, which said... We know that you're not, I mean, they didn't say this explicitly, but they said, you're not, you're not the guy that we would choose to write the propaganda piece for us. Right. But we also know that everything can't be a propaganda piece because they've had many uh, things that they've done on these, uh, on stuff like this. But rather, you are being honest. And not only that, this whole story gets the story of the Armenian genocide out, which is something that they are very, very committed to. They, they think it's they very... They want the story to be so out So they want now. that story to be out. So they're supporting the uh, book, uh, which is a relief to me because, um, frankly, I don't want to be looking over my shoulder when I'm walking down the street. Not that they do that kind of stuff anymore, but um, as far as I know, but they have in the past. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of this because it, this is a very serious, politically-oriented group of people, but their their primary thing is recognition of the Armenian genocide. It's the 100th anniversary of it this, uh, actually the week that my book comes out in April, April 24th. And and I also feel that way. I, I am, we are totally congruent in that we believe that it is, imp it's essential that people know that this was, this story happened. When you got to the end of it and you actually knew it was finished, you'd proofed it, edited it, finished it. Yeah, that took forever, but yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> Where does it find? So you're there now. I mean, where did that find you in terms of like figuring out what your next ambition is? Right, you'd written two novels before this three book, novels. three novels before this book, yeah, and then this giant hist historical nonfiction book. You haven't written a show for yourself to perform in a while. No. Well, there are there are some plays out there that haven't come into New York. One of which I did perform in years ago, uh, something called Red Angel. Um, but generally. Um, 
I guess I realize that my thinking is, I don't think in straight lines and I think in a fairly, like I'm thinking a lot of things at the same time and kind of congested. So it, it requires that I be in a more art arts kind of thing. I mean, it was hard for me to work yeah. where fact, it was all about facts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I would hit points in this book where it'd be like, well, I can just make this up. And the people, editors and the scholars I was working with were like, no, you can't make it up. You have to write, did that happen on that day or didn't that happen on that day? And like, well, come on, it could have happened on that day. Like, no, you have to show me the source. You have to take Well, so that's what I'm so, wondering. So the In reaction thing, to that, what yeah. happens to you? So I've been thinking, I mean, I'm not really there yet because I'm still reeling from the end of it, but I think the novel form or, or prose is a way where I can really stretch out and and explore the way that my head works. And so I will keep... I'm thinking of something very, something I can spend time on. And the, the thing that this book taught me was how to research. So I realized that I can research even when I'm working on fiction. This is obvious, right, to any fiction writer. But I, my research is usually confined to what I'm working on. Like, let's say I'm writing a TV show about the probation department, then I have to jump into the probation department yeah. feet first for six months or something. And I go, okay, I know the probation department. I'm going to write about that now. But I haven't done that. Most of my books have been about sort of my imaginative life, either my fantasies about like, yep. I don't know, power, shooting machine guns, sex with a million people, whatever it is that I think that's... Because while I'm writing the book, I fantasize. And then that's, I like live in that fantasy world while sure. I'm writing, but maybe I'll, you know, build this next book out of something with other building blocks, like a lot of research. What do you think you get out of the, out of the writing of long form that's not for you to get up and, and say in front of an audience? Like has, have, have you lost the, the need for the immediate feedback you said before you know you can get addicted to that sort of yeah the audience thing well what happened over the 20 years that i was doing the monologue shows was that i learned how to be funny i learned timing these are things you can learn and i got good at it and it becomes it just has such strong gravitational pull That's what yeah. to make that stuff amusing and some of the i mean the stuff really started with a more punk attitude of right. intense aggression and being is like phenomenally and nuts on stage as I could be. Right. And that changed over time. So I don't really trust myself to get in front of an audience with a monologue. And the monologues themselves, which I've been revisiting with this... With yeah, with the 100 monologues, sh 100 yeah. ...shooting them, is I see them as sort of like haikus. They always have some kind of idea in there, but it isn't necessarily a fully, like the most complex idea in the world, but it is an idea that I think is kind of fun, sort of, sound of one hand clapping or whatever whatever's happening in that particular monologue it comes it goes and it's what you can do in three minutes which i like but um i'm thinking in a different way now and i'm thinking about really big complex shapes and how they interlock with each other and it's just where i want to live for a while if i'm going to be if i'm going to be spending all my time with a book writing a book where is it i want to live and that's the place i want to live in right that's uh i mean it's still uh it's super inspiring, the fact that you're not, you know, you could take your monologues out and do a greatest hits tour and probably have a, a lot of uh, immediate fun and get audiences to come see you and stand up every night. And if you do that someday, we won't think you're selling out because uh, we'll want to be there and, and watch. But I think it's really, 
it's inspiring that you're like pushing yourself still as an artist and you it's just where the greatest pleasure lies that's all i'm ever the looking pleasure, for i mean for the, sure. re the reason that i had to stop doing certain toxic drugs was because they limit my ability to have pleasure in in the world it's not that they weren't pleasurable it's just i think there's something better out there and it isn't that getting up in front of an audience and doing these monologues isn't a blast and making people laugh is a blast but I, I, I just want to engage in some other way. I mean, the question is, how do I make it dangerous so that it scares me? You know, working on this history book, I definitely got scared. I mean, it was like, oh, I think it'd be fun to climb Mount Everest. Oh, I'm halfway up and it's impossible. I want to go home now. And I was definitely at a I want to go home now point last year. You can ask my agent on this book. It was, right. this is getting too hard. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't. I, I can't lock down these facts. We, you know, you're the, at, uh, you were at mile sixteen of the of the marathon, and it was you hit the. Yeah, we were in the British archives. We we're looking for a smoking gun or something for something, and we can't find it. And it's like great. So now that chapter is not going to work. But that gave you the feeling of not knowing whether you could succeed, which keeps you alive in a way. It. It. But another way to look at it is after working this book, working on this book. Every time I read a history, those histories come to life in a way that they never did before awesome. because I'm looking at, oh, here's, I can see the method this guy's doing. I, I go to the footnotes. I'm like, somebody said, if you go to the footnotes in a nonfiction book and you see Ibid, 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 that's like a lazy researcher. If you see all this other stuff, you're really, you know, delving into some incredible amount of work and it's it's funny just like you have songs that you love from pop music i have books that i love from weirdly middle eastern history books that are like wow that's 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 amazing stuff um well all right so when i get your book i guess i go to the bibliography first that's where i should start yeah the footnotes particularly yeah yeah, like Leslie Pierce's Imperial Harem is like untouchable as a book on this particular Ottoman history. It's like fantastic stuff. And uh, so like I'm kind of a, a fan of these things now. But hopefully for most people, it would be a read and you just go, oh my, as all my friends have been saying when they read the book, how did I not know this? And it's like, well, that's well, why I wrote it because you didn't that, know it. It's definitely a story I didn't know. And um, I'm excited to read it. Thanks for doing this. Um Really fun to get to talk to you this way, man. Um, this won't make me nicer at the poker table. <laughs> but uh, I really can't wait to read the book. And um, Thanks, everyone Brian. should go and check the book out. Operation Nemesis, the assassination plot that avenged the Armenian genocide out uh, April 21st. You can pre-order it now. Um, Little Gosen, Brown. Little Brown's the publisher. Yeah. Now I think you know everything. Uh, start at the footnotes, then go to the bibliography, then go to the beginning and read Eric's book. Eric, thanks, man. Thanks, Brian. See ya. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.